Each year, as Christmas draws near, there is something special in the air. We all feel it. From the decorations and carols, warm drinks and cozy slippers, it's as if the season taps into a holy longing deeply ingrained within us. You see, this season stirs up within our souls a burning desire we were created to crave. The advent of our King, the arrival of our Savior, our God come near. All of our lives we've experienced the curse of the fall, the shadow that sin cast upon this wounded world. But with the arrival of Jesus, hope came down, love drew near, our King came to conquer. Death will be no more. Shame will be undone. For with the advent of Jesus, the curse is broken. How we doing, Rise City Church? Oh, yes. Rowdy, ready for the new year. Hey, you guys are amazing. Um, Christmas Eve didn't quite go as planned this year. And I'm so grateful for a church that is so willing to adapt and just go with the flow and kind of participate and celebrating what those kids prepared and, you know, just joining. Advent is an interesting season because it's a season about um, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And where we're at, we look back and reflect on the arrival of the Messiah um, and look forward anticipating his second coming. But it's funny because theologian Ronald Rollheiser, I think he hit on the head when he says, our society knows how to anticipate an event, but we don't know how to sustain it and how quickly we move out of it and how quickly, and I'm not saying like keep that dead tree up all year round, like inside your living room. You know, it's probably not the best idea or keep those lights outside. But what I am saying is I do believe, um, even though this was an adjustment um, for us as a church and our plans and all these kind of things, I, I, I don't know if there's a better way for us to start 2023 than reflecting on the arrival of our Messiah, amen? And so this is what we're gonna do today. So if you grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter two. Uh, we... It's interesting because Christmas, it just doesn't always go as planned, does it? Um, and, and there's all kinds of things that, that, that we prepare and we're ready for. So like, you know, hey, we're going to have photos with Santa. So you have photos with Santa. It's this amazing thing. That, you know, this is um, at Santa's workshop. This is a little bow and Asher with, you know, with, with, with the rise Santa Claus, and we just loved it. Um, but I, we posted that, and then my sister said, yeah, our Santa picture didn't quite pan out uh, the same, you know, um, for, from last year. Apparently, you know, in the North Pole, COVID was a little political, you know, so uh, it didn't quite pan out. But then uh, for us, uh, we really, you know, my family, we kind of mailed in the Christmas lights this year. Usually it should be a really good thing. This is our Christmas lights, literally that strip. If you notice, three of those 20 are out. <laughs> Did we bother to replace them? No, we just totally mailed in. And it's even worse when you compare it with our, when you see the full picture and you see our neighbors, right? So our daughter was like, why do they have reindeer and we have bulb, you know? And it's just, uh, you know, you kind of mail it. Or you have uh, letters to Santa. That's always a good one. Dear Santa, how are you? Well, enough chit chat. Let's get down to business. This year I want one, two, three, right? You know? And, and so it, it's true. They don't always, it doesn't always meet our expectations. Uh, and to be fair, uh, the very first Christmas, it did not, the arrival of Jesus 
it didn't go how humanity would have planned it. And so here's, here's my desire. As we make all these adjustments and changes and launch into um, this new year by extending Christmas by one week, what I want us is to experience the peace on earth, the peace of Jesus all year round, that this would set a tone for us going into this year. And so as we open Luke chapter two, we see these expectations, we see this context that it did not go quite as expected. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world and that everyone, verse three, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, cloths, and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Here's the truth. As we see these details, we have to actually understand that there is tension and turmoil in the Christmas story. And this is what we're going to look at. And, and, and we're going to look at three things. Here, here's the first one. Um, there was a powerful empire, and we looked at this a handful of weeks ago. It was the Roman Empire. But this sets the context for the, where the Jews were at this time. And it was led by a man named Caesar Augustus. This is what Luke lists out here. Uh, a little bit about Caesar Augustus. He's the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He was actually the first Caesar to rule over the entirety of the Roman Empire, um, and also apparently the inventor of a headband and a salad, so he's got that on his resume. Um, his real name was Octavius, uh, but he went by the title of Caesar Augustus. Um, this is because they wanted to call him uh, dictator Octavius, and he didn't really like that, so he went with something lighter, Augustus, which means exalted one, you know, just high and lifted up, no big deal, very humble man. Uh, he also accepted the title of Pontifus Maximus, uh, which means high, the highest priest, um, because he was the head over all worship over Rome, which was pretty much the known world at the time. And uh, because they didn't have, they didn't have like newspapers or you know some kind of mail system or the internet, um, the way they spread messages and propaganda was actually through coinage. And so you see images and messaging um, was often on coinage. And so when he was about 19 years old, is when uh, Julius Caesar, his adoptive father, died. And he, uh, he very quickly defeated um, all else who held claim uh, shortly, shortly thereafter. And then he held these, these games in Rome and while, in, in his, in his uh, adoptive father's honor. And while they held these games, there was actually a comet that, that was in the sky during the entirety of these games. And they would point and they would say, see, that, that is my adoptive father's, that's his, that's his soul, because he is a deity, he's going to be with the rest of the gods. And so um, he, he actually had coins printed with his face on one side, and the coin, uh, and the star as a reminder on the other, and he would claim over and over, hey, I want you to always remember, I am the son of a god, that's who I am. Uh, other things that, that they had, even on their coinage, there was a period of Roman peace they called Pax Romana. And so they printed these coins, um, and it has this symbol of peace, kind of this handshake, and, and they called it the, you know, the Roman peace. And this idea that they brought, he united everybody, and therefore he brought peace to the entire world. He brought peace on earth. And how did they bring peace? Uh, it was by building one of the greatest armies the world had ever known. 
by training some of the most prolific warriors history would ever know, Roman soldiers, and by slaughtering anyone who stood in their way. And then finally, towards the end of his reign, um, subjects were required to confess each year, Caesar is Lord. Now, it's really interesting as you read through this list, isn't this? Um, This entire list was known as the euangelion, which is where we get the word gospel. This was the good news, the gospel of Caesar. He's the exalted one high and lifted up. He's the great high priest. He was the son of a God. He was the savior of Rome. He brought peace to the world, and Caesar is Lord. You see in a pattern here, you see in an interesting context to where, why Luke would write the gospel, the arrival of Christ the way that he would. Here's the second thing we see, is we actually find ourselves with a fractured family. When you look at Mary and Joseph, um, in that day in the ancient Near East, um, women were married off usually about age 13 or 14 when they could start having children. Uh, their husbands were often, uh, often the case, they were uh, th- three or four years older than they were. But, but here's the context, is Mary and Joseph, they're a couple of teenagers. And, and they enter it, and, and when Mary comes to Joseph, and says that I'm with child, um, Joseph, he doesn't believe her that it's the Messiah first, is what we see in Matthew 1. Because Joseph, was her, hus- her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. An angel has to be sent to Joseph in order for Joseph to be convinced that this is actually the Messiah. Now, here's what's interesting, and we usually skip over this part, is we know a few things about Mary's family, and we know about it because in Luke, it talks about her cousin, Elizabeth, who uh, has John the Baptist. And what do we know about Elizabeth is that she is from the line of the priesthood. She's from the line of Aaron, which is where the Levitical priesthood. So Elizabeth is most likely the daughter or granddaughter of a priest, And because Mary is her cousin, likely on her mother's side, Mary is, there's a good chance that Mary is actually the granddaughter of a priest. Now think about this culture that day and age, whether it would be a child born out of wedlock or born um, because of an affair. Um, There's great shame in getting pregnant outside of marriage. Uh, It would absolutely result in massive communal shame and even excommunication. They had a term uh, for children like this. They called them mamzers, uh, which is, you know, kind of an ancient Near East, a Hebrew word for bastard. And this is, th- this is what would be used. Even some of the Pharisees, when they talk to Jesus, they're like, hey, we're not illimit- illegitimate children like you. We're not mamzers like you. And so Joseph shows up to his hometown for the census, and, there's, and he's with the priests, most likely the priest's granddaughter, nine months pregnant. Man, it brought tons of shame. And it leaves little to the imagination why there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn, even though she was in her third trimester, ready to give birth, right? It's not because all the Airbnbs were full. It's not because there's no room at the hotel. It's because there's so much shame brought on this family because they don't believe Mary's story. They don't believe Joseph's story. And so this is the context. We have a powerful empire. We, we have likely a family that's in pain and disconnection. And then once Jesus is born, Herod, he actually begins to conspire to have Jesus killed. And so we have this flight to Egypt. And shortly after his birth, Herod, he begins to conspire 
to have Jesus killed, and an angel actually shows up to Joseph and says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, like, imagine what this was like for Mary and Joseph. They're teenagers. They've just, she's just given birth to Jesus and they're like, hey, you need to flee everything you know. You need to flee your family, your job, your people, and you're gonna go to this foreign land of Egypt. Oh, by the way, we have a lot of history with Egypt. That's where we were enslaved for 400 years. Likely, they took on false identities because they were trained to hide from, from Herod. They didn't, they didn't want it to be known. Oh, and by the way, um, you're also responsible for raising the Son of God, right? This is the context, the Christmas story backdrop. You have political frustration, you have the pain of family drama, and you have anxiety of personal crisis. Can anyone relate a little bit with the context to the Christmas story? These are not things we typically read or see, but this, this stuff is right here in the story. It's right here in the text. And what happens is an angel shows up to a group of shepherds. It says, and suddenly there, were, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You have all the pain, all the disconnection, all the frustration, all the chaos of Christmas, and then enters the Prince of Peace himself. This is, this is why this word is so significant. See, everything about the Christmas story is actually pointing us to how Jesus brings peace in the midst of our pain and our fears and our disconnect and our anxiety. And this is why we need it every year. Because we face so much hardship and disconnection and drama and anxiety. And we need to be reminded, man, we have a God who, is, who dwells with us and he is the Prince of Peace. The theologian Scott McKnight, he kind of explained Luke's gospel like this. He says, Luke counters and upstages each element of Rome's gospel. Good news, peace, the Son of God, the Savior, the gospel that angels announced to Mary and the shepherds was the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, was the Savior who would bring true peace to the world. And when we understand the backstory of Caesar and his lordship, of Herod and his peace that he's trying to bring, it brings a different context. See, what do we think of when we hear the word peace? We think of all kinds of things. Typically, what we mean is we mean the absence of problems or frustration or anxiety. That's what peace is, right? So we use these phrases like, like uh, I just want a little peace and quiet. The, it's the absence of chaos, right? When, so when I was a new father, I, I had a trick for, for finding peace uh, when my son was crying. I had these noise-canceling headphones I would put on. And, and I was so patient and peaceful, right? So we say, we say this phrase, I just want peace and quiet. Or we think of peace as the absence of conflict. I'm just trying to keep the peace so there's no conflict. Or the absence of confusion. I feel at peace about my decision. I feel like I have some clarity. And we often, the way we define peace is by the absence of problems. Yet here in the Christmas story, 
the story of Jesus entering our world and our lives, our human experience, the Christmas story is riddled with pain and conflict and tension. And it doesn't just disappear when Jesus shows up, does it? In fact, it, it, it increases. And yet the angels still have the audacity to declare peace on earth, goodwill to all men. How can this possibly be? This is because we think about peace in the wrong way. See, peace is not the absence of problems. Your problems aren't just going to go away and disappear. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And this is what we need in our lives. Our lives marked by pain and tension and anxiety and problems. We need the presence of peace himself. This is why the prophet Isaiah would say, for us, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Meaning, at once Jesus shows up, his peace increases and increases and increases. This word here in Isaiah um, if, you, if there's one Hebrew word you know, this might be it, or that you would recognize. It's the word shalom. And when we understand shalom and the depth of this word, it brings whole new meaning and understanding to peace. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of confusion. Um, first, it's the presence. Peace is a person. It's Jesus dwelling among us. It's the presence of God come near. But that presence, as he's near us, it, he, he infiltrates and he, and he brings all kinds of things. One of the things he brings is he brings harmony. Shalom means harmony of how things were meant to be. Harmony between us and God. Harmony between us and fellow humans. Harmony between humanity and the rest of creation. As Nicholas Walterstorff says, shalom is not merely the absence of hostility, but experiencing harmony amongst one's relationships. Shalom at its highest is enjoyment in one's relationships. To dwell in shalom is to enjoy living before God, to enjoy living in one's physical surroundings, to enjoy living with one's fellows, and to enjoy life with oneself. It's, it, the presence of Jesus actually brings the harmony that we need between us and God, between us and the rest of creation, between us and our fellow humanity. Um, but it also brings wholeness and what I mean by wholeness is that it means that things are restored to how they were intended to be. It's a process of reversing the curse, if you would say. Cornelius Plantinga, he explains it like this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, I don't know about you, but like when I look at the world around and, and the pain in which we face, man, I, I just feel like, man, we could use some shalom. Man, we could use the presence of Jesus in our lives. We could use the harmony that that presence brings. We could use the restoration, the wholeness of where it is. See, this is why shalom, it's the great reversal of the curse. It's what we've been looking at during this Advent season in kind of a unique 
perspective on Advent, but we've been looking at the curse of the fall. See, the fall, when, when humans chose to sin and reject God and we turn inward, it was actually, that was the inception of pain. It was, it's the source of sickness. It's the reason we have death. It's the beginning of broken relationships and fallen friendships. It's the reason for rebellion and rejection is the world is under a curse. And, and when we look at, and we, when we look at the garden, here's what we see in the original creation. We see we have relationship with each other and it's meant to be beautiful. It, it, that work is before the fall and work is meant to be good. That we are to be fruitful and multiply and to raise children and have families. That we take care of, nurture creation itself. That life itself is meant to go on for all of eternity and we're to have this connection with God. But the, the curse, it shatters it all. Relationships are shattered. Work is now burdened. Raising children and growing families is marked by pain. Creation, it says, is groaning. Life itself is no more and leads to death and connection with God is cut off. This is the beauty of Christmas. The arrival of our king is that when we were sinful, helpless, and broken, God entered our world to bring what? To bring peace to bring shalom, to bring wholeness and restoration back to all things. See, shalom, it's the presence of the goodness of God where we get a glimpse of God's wholeness. We get a glimpse, man, actually, this world needs to be restored and it needs to be renewed. And it's, it's actually the reversal of the curse. See, the opposite of the curse of the fall is the peace of Jesus, it's the antidote. It's what we long for and need. It's the restoration of the garden. It's the fulfillment of the kingdom. And so if we look at all of these things, we see relationships, yet there's still, we feel the lingering effects of the curse. We do. This is why there's gossip and wounds and betrayal. But because we've received the presence of love himself, that love himself drew near, we can be a people who actually walk in love, experiencing that love, and saying that the curse has no power here anymore. In our work, yeah, we still have thorns and thistles and work by the sweat of our brow, but now we are actually partnering together with God in building a new world, an eternal kingdom. This is why we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a glimpse of the kingdom. Our family, we can experience redemption. Yes, we still suffer pain and hardship. We will suffer miscarriages and rebellious children, but Jesus redeemed the family line. This is why Luke and Matthew begin with these, these um, family lines. It's because he's bring, bringing redemption to it. God's creation, yes, it's fallen and broken, but we see a restoration. I mean, think about how beautiful it is that creation itself is testifying to who Jesus is. What do we see at the birth of Jesus? We see a star that marks his location to the wise men. What do we see when he's older and he's performing miracles that storms surrender and calm at, at just the sound of his voice? What do we see at his death that the sky goes dark and begins to weep and rain, marking and grieving? What is happening at creation? It's being restored to its original purpose to bring glory and worship to God. This is why Jesus says, if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. Because that is the purpose of all of created order. What Jesus is doing and bringing his peace on earth is he's reversing the effects and the damage of the curse. Yes, it's still here. There's still a shadow. But he's giving us a glimpse of the kingdom and the life to come. See, life 
It's no longer marked by the curse of death. Yes, we will still grieve and mourn the temporary loss of those we love. But here's the thing. Jesus gives us a glimpse of something so much more powerful. It's resurrection, that we can be eternal. See, Herod, he goes around killing all these children. And he thinks that through death, he can put an end to Christmas. But Jesus has something different to say, that through Christmas, he's gonna put an end to death. This is the reversal, this is the presence, and even our connection with God. Yes, we still fall short, and we feel a disconnection, and we feel alone, and we feel distance. But now, through Jesus and his manger, and his arrival, and his life, and his death, he has given us full access to God through his blood. And each and every day we can dwell in the presence of the Prince of Peace. This is the peace. This is what the Bible means when it says peace on earth. This is what the scriptures mean when it says the Prince of Peace. It's love and partnership and redemption and restoration and resurrection and full access once again. And so what do, what do we do with this? Well, uh, here's the first thing we need to do is, man, we need to dwell daily in the peace, in the shalom of Christ. Just, just dwell in it. Here's the thing, man. Like, as we start this new year, I get it, right? We all have our resolutions. We're going to be less fat and more rich, you know? Didn't work last year, but it's going to work this year. It's going to stick, right? But, like, what we don't prepare ourselves is for the pain that we're going to face. For, for many of us, listen, we're going to face pain this year. Some of you are going to face a crisis in your marriage that you were not expecting. Some of you are going to have fallout in your family. Some of you guys are going to lose jobs and lose finances. Others will have physical health scares and you will never be the same. Like our economy, are you kidding me? Like it might collapse. Like our country, it feels like it's on the brink of a civil war. And oh yeah, by the way, World War III might be brewing, right? Here's a good new year, new you message. Am I right? Like, oh, that's just a feel-good message at church. But, but here's the thing. We know and I think we can expect that these things are gonna happen because we live in a fallen world. And I want us to prepare ourselves because what's gonna happen is we continually get caught off guard by the pain of this world, like, oh, it wasn't supposed to be this way. I didn't think that was gonna happen. Is, is the darkness and pain of this world, it starts to sit on our hearts and our minds and we become hardened. And rather, rather than turning to peace himself, we, we try to fight evil with evil. And, and it just starts to turn us. You know, it was a couple days before Christmas. I was here, and uh, I, I was preparing for, for Christmas Eve, uh, which didn't quite pan out. And uh, um, as I'm walking in, you know, we have a lot of situations on this property where we'll, we'll have individuals kind of sleeping outside and out front. And we actually have a really good um, relationship with Gresham PD and a partnership where you can reach out to them. And they, and they help, you know, take the proper steps of, you know, getting somebody plugged into a shelter and things like that. But as I'm walking in, I don't know if you remember this, but it was like 13 degrees a couple days before Christmas. And, and, and so there's a guy bundled up in a sleeping bag. And I was like, I, like, I, I don't want to do that right now. I don't want to have him get up and get out. Like, he looks warm and cozy. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to walk inside and just kind of do my thing. Well, about an hour after I was here, um, he got up, and uh, for some reason he had with him um, an industrial juice press, like you do, you know? Um, <laughs> apparently that's like a thing, you know, juice whenever you want it, a big heavy metal thing. And he just wakes up, 
and uh, gets out his sleeping bag and grabs his juice press and walks over to my truck and starts smashing the back of my truck with his juice press. And then juice press breaks on my truck, Tacoma, you know? And then so he throws it at the back window and shatters the back window and then gets his stuff and walks off, right? So somebody comes and tells me like what just happened. And I have this temptation to like become bitter and jaded. You know what I'm saying? Like this is why we shouldn't show compassion to people. This is why we should not be loving to people because you're just gonna get windows smashed, am I right? But here's the thing. This world is going to smash your windows. This world is gonna come after you. It's gonna be filled with pain. It's gonna be filled with frustration. It's gonna be filled with injustice. And that's, as, that's about as small as it gets as an example. But if we're not careful, we'll let it creep into our hearts and harden us. And what Jesus has called us to is to rest in his peace. Peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And, and so we have to dwell in his peace. You are going to have pain this year. It's going to come. And when it comes, do not harden yourself and do not battle back with anger and hatred. Turn to the Prince of Peace and allow his shalom, allow his presence to be with you and to dwell with you. See, here's what I know is that if we would actually lean into Jesus this year, that despite all the pain and the fallout and the plans that don't go our way, we can have a year that is marked by incredible joy. We can have a year that is marked by the shalom of Christ. You know how I know this? Because Paul, the apostle Paul, he was thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And he's writing to one of his churches that he dearly loves. And he says, hey, all, this thing that, all these things that are happening, your friends being thrown into per prison, the persecution, the pain, the hardship, the death, the grief, all of this, don't be anxious about it. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And this is what he says, and he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, man, if we would bring, if we would dwell in the presence of Jesus, if we would bring our fears and our pain, what we can get is the peace of God. I love this phrase. It, it talks about peace all kinds of times in the New Testament. And, and there's three different pieces. Um, there's peace from God which is a gift from him, and, and, but that's not what he says here. There's peace with God, meaning restored relationship, but that's not what Paul says here. What he says is the peace of God. The same peace that the sovereign king of the universe that knows all things, that has power to control all things, that peace can dwell with you if you would but dwell with him and turn to him in all these things. Spurgeon put it like, look, like this. He says, What's, what is God's peace? It's unruffled serenity. What a good phrase right there. Unruffled serenity in the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. All the content, all, all the contentment that God has, all the joy of all that he knows, all the power that he has, Paul is saying, if you would come to him and dwell with him, that peace is yours and available. And if we do, which says, which transcends all understanding, 
It doesn't mean that it's senseless or foolish. It means it's not logical that we would be able to have peace in the midst of so much pain, but when we dwell with God, we can experience that. And it actually transcends knowledge, meaning it goes beyond not just information and knowledge in your head, oh, I know peace, but it goes to experience. This could be a year despite death, despite loss, despite turmoil, despite grief, you could experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding and it will guard your hearts and minds. Isn't that an interesting phrase? It will guard your hearts and minds. What's it guarding it? It's protecting us from becoming jaded, bitter, and cold because of the world around us. This is what the peace of God does. Guys, this is what our world needs. It needs us to actually live this out. And, and so how, how do we do this? How do we a church that qu- constantly and consistently dwells in the presence of Jesus? Well, this is why, as you came in on your seat, um, we're going to be doing something just called New in 90. Um, and it's the New Testament read-through in 90 days. Um, it, it's, a, it's a unique order, and that's pretty intentional and purposeful. But here's, there's a goal to this. And I, want, I want everyone in our church to do this together. For, for the first three months, that it's about three chapters a day. The goal is that we would dwell daily and experience the presence of Jesus. We're not doing it so we can have all the answers, although it's good to get some clarity. And I think you will gain that from reading the scriptures. We're not doing it so we can say, well, <laughs> yeah, I read the New Testament this year. Though, look, it's a good idea as a follower of Jesus to know his teachings, okay? We are doing it so that collectively as a church body, we would daily dwell with peace himself. That as we wake up and we don't know what we're gonna face that day, we know who will face it alongside us. We know whose presence will dwell with us and allow his voice to guide and direct our lives so that no matter what we're facing, we can face it with joy, with peace, and worship God through it all. Thomas Carlyle, he, he put it like this when he's talking about the scriptures. He says, the Bible is the truest utterance that ever came by alphabetic letters from the soul of man, through which, as through a window divinely opened, because the scriptures are Holy Spirit inspired. All men, all human beings, they can look into the stillness of eternity. Or another way to put it, they can look into the shalom, how things were meant to be and discern in glimpses their far distant, long forgotten home. Man, I don't know about you, but that makes me wanna open my Bible and just hear and dwell in God's truth. But here's the thing, as we dwell daily in the presence of Jesus and we experience his peace and his shalom, then we can be a people who bring the peace of Jesus into the lives around us. It would be a response. We can't just do this on our own, but as we experience his peace, his wholeness, his restoration, we can actually be bringers of peace into the broken world around us. What the Bible calls this is peacemakers. See, you guys, we live in a hurting, broken world. And what the world needs is not another political agenda, not another person riddled with anxiety. What the world needs is a church marked by peace and presence and love and hope wholeness. And this is what we're called to be. Man, what if we were those people? A couple summers ago during Church in the Park, I shared this story about this guy. 
And uh, I drive past his house every day um, on the way to church. And um, he sits on this wooden bench. And man, he's just, uh, the first time, he always sits on his wooden bench. He's out there smoking his cigarettes. And he always waves at me. And at first it was like a small thing, like, yeah, here's a peace sign. And I gave a little peace sign back. But it like built over the months. And so now, like, he sees my truck coming around the corner, and he, like, stands up, and he's like, yeah, like, throwing the peace sign out, you know, like, right? And, uh, you know, he, he's, like, I, like, look forward, this is, like, a part of my day I, like, look forward to is this guy. He just brings joy to it, right? And, and in fact, a couple months ago, I was like, I, I can sit, I've been doing this for about a year. I need to actually know this guy's name, and I need to get to know him a little bit. So I rolled my window down, and I say something to him, and he goes, What? And so I say it a little bit louder, which I'm a pretty loud guy. I know people can hear me, right? Even not amplified. And uh, I say, so I say it again. He goes, what? And so I say it even louder a third time. And he starts laughing. He goes, I'm deaf. I can't hear you. Peace, you know, right? And I drive off. And I'm like, this is, this is my guy, right? <laughs> and so a few weeks ago, I'm driving past and his bench is outside and he's not sitting there. And there's flowers on his bench. And there's candles all around his bench. And I was so sad. Like, I don't even know this guy's name. But he brought so much joy in such a simple thing in life. What if we were those kind of people? What if every time you showed up to work, you brought peace and joy? What if every time you walked into a restaurant or a coffee shop, what if every time your neighbor walked past you, you were so soaked and so saturated in the peace of Jesus that you brought his peace and joy to others. The Bible has a word for this. It's peacemaker. And this is what we're called to be. Oshetta Moore, she puts it like this in such a beautiful, powerful way. She says, we become peacemakers when we, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, catch a glimpse of shalom, and pull our friends to stand in our line of vision so that they too can see the beauty of the kingdom. This is the call of the church. Shalom is what happens when the love of God meets our most tender places. Therefore, we can all be peacemakers because we can all seek and access the love of God to heal our broken places. Listen, and this is my call for this church this year. Would you come and experience the peace of Jesus? Would you dwell in his presence every day? And would you just let it settle in your bones? Would, it, would you allow it to just soothe your soul? Would you be so saturated in the gospel yourself and the good news of the peace of Jesus, of the presence of Jesus, that you would be able to be someone who brings peace to those around you? Listen, as your family experiences fallout and pain and disconnection this year, be the person who brings peace. Don't be the person who says, no, 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 see, I was right, or I can't believe you wounded me, or I can't believe you did that. Be the person who says, man, I'm called to be a peacemaker. And I'm so soaked in Jesus' love and his peace and his grace and his goodness that I can actually bring the presence of peace into the turmoil of my family. And as your community battles over political frustration, like what if you were the one who by your words and actions reminded everyone that we do not find our hope in the power and prestige of this world, 
that we are called to be a light in these dark times instead of just fighting harder and louder? What if you were a person of peace? When conflict strikes your core group of friends, when conflict strikes your church community that you love, what if you led the way in seeking to say, no, we need to make peace? And you did it through humility and kindness because you're so soaked in the gospel of Jesus. When tragedy strikes, would you be a person who enters the situation just so saturated in the presence of Christ that you can't help but bring unexplainable peace of God to those around you just by being present? Man, as we walk into this new year, would we be so radically transformed by the presence of Jesus that his peace, his shalom rests upon us, on our souls so deeply that we would actually be people who bring peace into the pain of the world around us. Jesus, would you allow us to be these kind of people? Would you allow us to be a church that brings joy to our neighbors, that brings peace to the turmoil of our families and our cities, that brings humility and grace to the conflicts we face? Would we dwell in your presence this year? Would we focus on you and your, your grace and your love and your goodness and your shalom so deeply that we can't help but be a light to a dark and hurting world? We pray this in your name. Amen.